0: Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Witten, and my co-host Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what
1: separates the doers from the thinkers. This is a conversation with Steve Chapman. Steve worked for GSK for 20 years. He started packing boxes and ended up in a senior management role, and then he became an artist. It sounds like a huge dose of doing something very different, but it's not quite as dramatic as that. Steve has found a way to do what he wants to do and earn a living by selling his art and helping organisations understand creativity and the human condition. He says, I'm at my best when I'm on the edge of not quite knowing what I'm doing. Amen to that. I think we all are. We can only grow when we're pushed, when we step into the unknown. Steve talks here about working in a factory, social loafing, our addiction to expertise, embodying not knowing, the beginner's mind, silent podcasts, rumblings of discontent, helpful bosses, feelings being real, quantum flirting, safe uncertainty, childlike enthusiasm, comedy money, learning to live below his means and more. To me, Steve is a great example of someone who has and continues to trust his gut. He has swapped financial security for more meaningful experimental work. He fully understands that with the joy of this approach comes despair, but he also knows it comes in waves. Steve is an adventurer. He experiments, he wins and loses, and does his best to practice letting go, noticing more and using everything. Enjoy. Steve Chapman exploring the counterintuitive. Oh, want to know whether scorpions can smoke or not? You'll find the answer here too.
0: Um, we we like to just try and go straight in, Steve. So we, we, we will probably cut some of Ray's incompetence. <laughs> From the beginning, because no one wants to listen to that. If you Some cut people,
1: all my incompetence from everything we've ever recorded, there wouldn't be much left. No, that's a, that's not fair. There's definitely <laughs> something left. Yeah.
0: Um, Steve, thank you for taking the time for uh, uh, meeting with us. We 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 used to only ever do this in person, and we were quite religious about it. We <laughs> we we told ourselves that if we did it virtually, it wouldn't work. And then COVID put a stop to that. And then we did it through COVID and actually we've had some really good conversations and I, oh, so I'm optimistic about this one. If it doesn't work, we're going to come do it in person. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Just start that pressure from the start. I could be yeah. the first bad <laughs> virtual.
0: <podcast. laughs> um, let me, let me give, I'll, I'll give a little bit of background as to how you came into my world. Um, I, I can't remember who posted it, but I saw something about the um, not a lost cat project and it immediately got my attention just on the basis of not a lost cat and the picture. And I'll just do a, a, a quick summary of, of the way I perceive it, and then you can, you can correct me. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a really nicely drawn poster of a lost cat. Um, but then when you pay a bit more attention to the poster, you realize that there isn't a lost cat. It's just a, an opportunity to put a picture of what you describe as a magnificent beast yeah. out there in the wild. And, um, and the £300 reward, uh, if you look at the small print, actually says pay yourself £300 for taking some time to recognise the Magnificent Beast or something. Yeah. Um, so it immediately caught my attention. And, and I thought I thought it was just some art that you could buy. And then uh, as I looked into it, realised that you just sign up and then you very kindly send two copies to anyone that's interested. And, uh, and the idea is that you put one up near where you live for other people to enjoy and then you have one in your house and so I quickly signed up and then I thought hold on a minute there's more to this did a little bit of uh of google research and um and here we are and I and I and I suspect that we're gonna find that we share lots of attitudes in terms of the way we look at the world yeah um so I'm, I'm really intrigued to learn more about your story uh is that was that a fair representation of of that project
2: yeah I think so I mean it's uh I saw a real lost cat poster and I did a Sort of copy of it and then stuck one up in London, and then we're here. That's that's the way that, that things like that work. And that poster there's over 3,000 of them now in 48 countries on every continent in the world. Oh, it's great! That's that's just the best. My intention, um, and it just carries on. I mean, it's got a life of its own now. I have no control over that project.
0: Have you got so you've got Antarctica now? Have you? Yeah,
2: I've got you have. Yeah,
0: that's insane. That is absolutely it's insane. Exactly
2: wonderful photo um, that i can send you uh, i'll send you afterwards i think it's probably on my on the website it was the only continent that didn't have a cat poster in so this started i put one up in shoreditch and now they're in 48 countries and i just thought how am i gonna get antarctica you can't just send something to antarctica and i went on instagram and uh, just searched for antarctica and i found a chef who was based in san francisco who was getting posted to antarctica apparently because there's nothing to do in Antarctica other than research but there's not like pubs and like country walks and stuff like that um they have really good chefs posted there and so I just direct messaged this chef and I said this is a bit of a weird request and to cut a long story short I love these emails whenever they start with
0: this is a bit of a weird request but yes an email that gets my attention yeah
2: exactly and he loved the idea and he took it um he said he had to pack so minimally uh to go there but he managed to put one in and there's a photo of it just it's at mcmurdo station um which is one of the antarctica bases and there's just this cat with a massive magnet on it because it's so windy and then there's just nothing in the background just frozen (laughs) sea and frozen mountains and (laughs) icebergs and stuff
0: did you have any idea when you came up with the idea did you have any idea that it would become what it's become?
2: I mean, it, no. It, I saw the the original Lost Cat poster I saw just had this really magnificent looking cat on it. And it said at the bottom, um, take a photo of this poster and share it with your friends and family, obviously to try and find the lost cat. But my, my imagination just gets fired off with stuff like that. And I thought, well, maybe the, the guy hasn't lost his cat. He just thinks it's such a brilliant cat. He wants it to go viral. So that was the initial idea. And I didn't even want to make, I didn't even intend to make the posts. I just shared it on Instagram. And loads of people said, can I have a copy of this? Um, and then it's just, okay. It, my improviser's mindset is like, oh, there's something here, what's the offer here? What's the invitation here? And I just keep saying yes to that. And then that's where it is now. And then there's been days where, I mean, this project I make no money from it. And I had to start charging postage because it just costed me a fortune. And then there be, would be entire days that um i think it was in the observer magazine It got a mention in there i didn't know that i just woke up with like 300 orders to <laughs> pack um i'm going to state the obvious and i know you've thought about this why, why are you not charging for it because i think um i think money screws things up like this this is a there's a number of projects maybe go into any of them i was host of the world's first silent podcast featuring special guests i um <laughs> I held a, a conference that was the opposite of TED. Um, What's that, debt? (laughs) That would have been a a simpler way. It was called In Expert 2018. But all of these things are experiments in what happens if if I invite people to do the opposite of norms, opposite of traditions, opposite of those things. And as soon as there's profit in it, it would screw it up. A couple of media agencies have said to me about the Lost Cat Project. Oh, could you do something with us to do with a product? And it's like, well, no, the poster isn't the thing. The pointlessness, the pointlessness of it is the thing. And as soon as there was some profit making in it, or direct profit making, I think it would screw it up. Now, of course I get paid to go and do talks about these weird projects. So in a way it works, or people will see the cat poster and then come and buy some art. But yeah, that direct profit thing, it, it, would, it would change it, I think. So it's sort of
1: um, <clears throat> uh, enjoyable marketing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I people keep saying that I'm brilliant at marketing. I know sort all about marketing. But looking no. back, actually, this is, <laughs> this is pretty good marketing, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. People right. are people are covering my costs to spread my art around the world. And mm. now in my bio, I can say I've sold work. It might be just covering a stamp. I've sold work across every continent in the world.
1: Yeah, it's, I, do, I do find it fascinating because... I, um, you know i I used to be in marketing, so right um, and I just sort of never really understood like what value we were really adding yeah <laughs> and um but word of mouth, which is what yeah, yours is really, is just i don't know' so
2: much more real well, and that's it's what's lovely about the this project is it started to join up. That's probably not marketing speak. They started to join up. That I will oh, then meet people, that then find out that I've done the poster, and they go, oh, "I've seen that." I got an, a new tattoo in Brighton the other week, and as a gift, I gave the tattooist a copy of the poster. And he goes, "All oh, right, oh this, yeah, I know this." <laughs> right. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it sort of joins up in that way. But I, I think it's it's an invitation to. Um, to do stuff that doesn't have a point to it, the, the project has created 3,000 paste-up artists around the world, and put, quite often people will say, oh, "I felt so naughty putting that poster." Oh, yeah, up. I, yeah haven't my, I
0: haven't put mine up yet actually, and my son's really intrigued about the yeah. process of putting it up. So I'm oh, going to be. Some I'm... people,
2: some people have had the poster for a year. Um, and if they're listening to this podcast, they know who they are, and still haven't put it up. <laughs> and it's, that's fine. I have no expectations. I think of the three thousand, I've three hundred. I think it's three thousand two hundred. I've sent out. I probably have photos of nine hundred, maybe a thousand of them. Uh, the loads and, of them just disappear.
1: And and the reluctance you imagine is because it's naughty.
2: I mean, it, it could be a number it's illegal. It's some people. I used to be like this with a kid when I get a sticker. And then I'd never put the sticker on anything. So it's like, oh no! Once I put it on there, that's it. I've made a choice. And I think there might be a bit about can I put it in a bad place? Where's a good place to put it? Right. Some people probably just forget. Um, but then there is that bit of um, is this is this legal? Is this naughty? Um, yeah. It's. I think if it makes people stop and think, then that's not illegal and naughty. It's. It, I, I'm doing a big billboard project, which um, I'm not allowed to talk about, so I shouldn't have brought it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for that. That's all right. That's that's a teaser. Yeah, you tune in in a couple of weeks. I think <laughs> you're you're good that. at marketing. You really are good at marketing. Exactly. Um, and I quite often said with that that there's uh, street art is it's so important because it democratizes art. It's not behind the walls. And uh, appreciate that you've worked in marketing and things like that some billboards advertising their vandalism that's that's forcing that's inviting me to buy products i don't want with money i haven't got whereas the, the lost cat poster what, what what's going to happen someone take it down put it in the bin well it, it, it's entertainment isn't it what, what's banksy yeah exactly exactly and then i got lots of lovely stories from people um particularly during lockdown that would come across the poster and they're, they've been for their permitted like hours worth of exercise like, be that in Australia, be that in Holland, be that in the UK, and I'd say oh, I just come across this. Really made it worth my while going out today, and it's like that's that's what it's about. I think. What's the
0: what's the most other than the Antarctica um, story? What's the most random thing that's happened as a as a direct consequence of that project?
2: Um, oh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, there's weird locations. There's one in Hawaii. There's one in Saint Helena, which is like that's the middle of the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. Um, the Observer magazine thing was weird. There's was just a little column in that, um, and you didn't know anything about where that no, came from or why, and no, it just appeared. It just appeared, and of course, because it was in the magazine, and I don't, I don't buy newspapers or read newspapers. I couldn't work out why there were suddenly loads of orders, and because normally you go onto Google or something like that, you do some analytics, um, and I couldn't find it. And then eventually, someone told me about it. Um, Let me just—Zoe Ball mentioned it on her breakfast show. Suddenly, suddenly went like suddenly a load more orders. So it the, the whole thing's bizarre. The whole thing's really strange. But I I I like that. It's I didn't set out for a project. The silent podcast was a massive project that took two and a half years. And everyone was saying to me, What's next? And I was sort of wondering what's next. And then all of a sudden, there's this cat poster that's taken over my life.
0: Let, let me just check check a detail because I almost I want to make sure this is right in my head. Have you personally shipped all three thousand two hundred of these.
2: Yes. All handwritten envelopes. I've got a load up here. Um, wow. Because and again, it- it's that personal side of it, handwritten env- has yours arrived yet, by the way. It has, said? yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So the hand I use, I decorate envelopes normally, but I don't have time to decorate the cat envelopes because I literally wouldn't earn any money whatsoever. But yeah, it's all all from here, from this what I call the art bunk of my studio. That's insane. All right let's um
0: let's back up a bit steve what we, we normally start these conversations with um if you meet somebody new at a party and they ask you that horrid question of what do you do how do you tend to respond
2: do you yeah, i'm just starting to sweat even more than i am the <laughs> thought of going to a party to start with um my, speaking my, to
0: somebody you don't know
2: yeah um one of my best-selling um Prince yesterday at the market stall was one that's called the amazing adventures of socially awkward dog um and that's totally based on me um but now if i go there i'd say I, i'm if i'm cornered if i'm forced to go to a party where i don't know people i say i'm an artist that's the the least uncomfortable label i think i,
0: I noticed when you said when you said that to us so people that are listening to this won't have seen what we just saw but you did that thing where you went i'm an artist," right. And you
1: shook your head.
2: It's because so, it's like, what the, what the hell does that mean? It's like, oh, okay, you're forcing me into give you, yeah. giving you a label, but that is the least uncomfortable label. And, and, and what is the most uncomfortable? I don't know. It's a good question. It, it may, may be a lie of some sort. Um, <laughs> it's, it's because what, what is most uncomfortable is being narrowed down to one thing. that mm. you don't like um, to be. Well, it's, it doesn't feel truthful it's like yeah. it's not that I mind it but if I if I say well I'm an artist and I go all oh, right and then people find out that I I've facilitated really important transformative dialogue around gender and difference with people around the world it's like well but you're an artist how can you do that and if I say yeah. well I'm a I'm a dialogic consultant oh no how can you? you can't do that you're an artist
1: well also you, you know you what do you do yeah always makes the it's sort of you sort of tend to
2: respond about work yeah <laughs> or absolutely. whatever you call is work I'm i mean musician what? as well but yeah, yeah. like, well, yeah. you said he was an artist <laughs> the way that i like to respond is to say what i'm doing so yeah. so what do you do well i've got this billboard project that i shouldn't have bought else can't talk about it yet <laughs> um i'm recording some music i am um what am i doing this week i had a market store selling some artwork i'm running a creativity workshop for an organization online um in a couple of days then i'm off to a festival to give a talk that that sort of is more of a fun yeah a bit. that makes a lot of sense when or when to, when did you start answering with
0: i'm an artist or or if you had to if you had to try and put a timeline on it
2: um I mean, when do you think
0: when did that change happen I and what
2: was it be before about five or six years ago um so reasonably recently in the grand uh, scheme of things do,
0: do you know do you remember what it was that gave you the confidence to start to embody that?
2: I think there's a number of things that um, you can bleep this out. I don't know if i are allowed to swear on this. Was a moment. And said, oh, oh, fuck it. It's, <laughs> that's sort of become my philosophy of life is, oh, fuck it. What's the worst that's going to happen? But then also a friend of mine, um, Nick Parker, um, who played trumpet for us at the conference that was the opposite of Ted because he hadn't learned to play the trumpet properly. But Nick Parker said to me, it was after that event, I think, he said, all of your work is art, Steve. And I thought, oh right, okay. So, in expert, the Sound of Silence podcast, Lost Cat Projects, plus paintings and stuff and workshops, they are all artistic expressions. So from that point on, I think. Um,
1: Can so I just I'd ask
2: think, it, you? You mentioned the the opposite of TED, and,
1: and I'm I'm sort of a little bit intrigued. Yeah. Because go on, hit me.
2: What what that one was? Yeah. What was it? Well, I mean, all of the, all of the projects, the Lost Cat Project, everything starts with a question. Normally, I'm either running or walking the dog something like that, and my mind will just wander. And I, I, I've been bothered by the cult of TED for a while. And not just TED, I'm not just picking on TED, but the whole idea of expert, short, snappy, 15-minute talks, tangible takeaways, do what the person on stage says and your life will change irrevocably, definitely type thing. It's um, it's It encourages what I call social loafing, which is I'm going to go to these things and someone else is going to do the work for me and I just need to apply it um and i I, i'm total hypocrite i did two ted talks um because they were interesting things to do but people's after the first one particularly because it got quite a few views people started engaging with me as if i knew what i was talking about and it just because i'd been part of that platform yeah i started speaking to people and they said oh i really want to do a ted talk and what on i don't know i just want to do one i think no that's the wrong way around yeah right so i thought this addiction to expertise, this addiction to quick fix life hacks is bothering me. What would the opposite be?
1: Well, I think I think that's uh, w- w- this is partly what this podcast is about. It's about the difference between thinking and doing. And yeah. and, and so many people think <laughs> yeah. uh, that if they l- listen to a podcast, if they read a book, if they turn up at a TED talk, that once they know what to do, that's enough.
2: Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's. I ran a workshop, I do lots of workshops around shame and creativity and the inner critic and things like that. And it's a two day workshop. Um, and I remember at the end of one day, this, um, this young woman came up and said, this has been brilliant, but it was obviously discombobulated, we're halfway through the workshop. And she said to me, is there a TED talk I could watch tonight that will answer all of this for me? Which is a nice, which is a, I understood what she was, asking and i just thought we're treating these things like philosophical paracetamol they just dumb they just numb us out of something so in expert was um one of my mantras in my work which is from the world of improv performance improv is if you're going to die die big so i thought i'm going to do this needs to go spectacularly badly rather than just whimper out so i hired a um hundred seat of theater in covent garden for the event it's all not for profit um, it's completely sold out, and I recruited sixteen speakers to give talks on subjects they were interested in but had no expertise in and that that was the important tension that they were interested but had no expertise. I didn't want people to come along and go, oh, "I don't care about badgers, so I'm going to talk about them um, and it was really difficult to recruit speakers I got for 16 speakers i got probably about 100 applicants and they went into three buckets and i think this is of interest the type of applicants they got the majority went into the first bucket which was people that just obviously apply to everything and they'd say well i want to talk about my new book and it's like okay you're not going to be in um the middle bucket was interested in it was people that wanted to talk about in expertise or about not knowing. And it's like, I don't want you to talk about it. I want you to embody it. And then the third bucket, which was much smaller, um, were people that would just say, God, this sounds terrifying. I don't know. I sort, I'm i sort of interested in robots, but I don't know much about them. It's like, yeah, good. We're onto something here. You're the type of person I want.
1: Am I I'm sort of assuming that there was a real value in it in the sense that, that because they were new to the subject, they were starting where the audience was. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's,
2: it's, they were, I, I coached all the speakers into a place of not knowing, which is the opposite to how you normally would with speakers. It's like, now this seems to be getting a bit too concrete for you here. So that they walk on stage like with what the, what the Buddhists call a beginner's mind. It's like, mm. I don't know what's mm. going to happen. And that changed the entire thing. There was no status differential really between audience and <clears throat> on stage. It was uncomfortable. It was funny. It was emotional. It was weird. It was bizarre. And there was lots of articles written about it. Um, but the main thing that people said, I mean, you can, I, I still can't describe it properly. They just said it was like an undeniable afternoon of being human together.
0: Oh, that's and nice. Just in this really space nice.
2: of not knowing together, there was nothing to be achieved. And it, now I've got a talk, what I do, I did it last week, actually, that um, it's called Nine Wonky Projects Interspersed with Thoughts on Creativity in the Human Condition Featuring a Bingo Machine. So it's a nice snappy title, um, affectionately known as the bingo machine talk. And it's a talk about creativity. But just to the point you were making, Ray, right at the start of the talk, I say, you've got to do the work, audience. You've got to do the work. I mean, I'm fed up with me being asked to do the work, me to tell you how to be creative. It's like, you've got to do it. And it's a bit disarming, but people get so much more out of it. That means if you've got 100 people in the audience, they'll walk away with their own unique take on it rather than. Me trying to force fear so this is this is my interest in the counterintuitive and the, the opposite of normal isn't just a, well it's not even anything to do with being wacky it's i think it gets us unstuck mm. it invites us to a place of wonder and mystery and experimentation which the other stuff's not working i don't think if you look at the world where when
0: uh, some of the things that you're talking about the way it resonates is Ray and I have talked about this loads on the podcast and off about if you look at children they have lots of the answers and then the social conditioning sort of knocks a lot of the answers out and then we find people like you where you're being childlike and I don't mean that in a demeaning way I mean that in a as a a compliment actually What, what I'm wondering about is so many people aren't able to hold on to that childlike behavior yeah. it's almost like the social conditioning punches it out of them so much that they that they can't remember it or yeah. I, I don't know what happens but i want to try and understand if we can go back a bit more in your past yeah h- how did it play out for you so the, the pointed question but there's more to it is these um projects of curiosity have they always been a feature is it something that you grew up with and they just developed and they've continued to be a big part of you or, yeah, so or are they more punctuated than that
2: it's um they've always been dormant but they've not always been a feature and to, to your point of saying about um children having the answers knocked out of them i think it's the children have the questions knocked out of them
0: yeah um, good point
2: and that's because that's what it is for me is i'm not interested in in finding an answer i'm interested in the question behind the question if i mm. find an answer i've taken a wrong turn um or because it's it's illusory there isn't an answer for anything but for me, I mean, the, the potted history is at primary school. So that's up to what, age 11. Um, I used to write stories. I used to illustrate stories. I'd read stories to the younger kids at school. Um, I would have a radio show at home that I'd record in my bedroom that obviously had no listeners. I'd compose like and- the podcast, right? Yeah, a bit like that. Yeah. The, that podcast had listeners, though. That's the thing. <laughs> it had no content. It had listeners um I can tell you more about that podcast later but I, I'd, I'd, rec- I'd compose music and I couldn't really play any instruments and I remember performing that in assembly and it's just I remember at that time obviously hindsight I probably wasn't thinking it in these words but thinking right this is what I want to do in life this is this is my stuff and then going to secondary school and then going oh no no, no that's their hobbies that's stuff to do when you don't have homework to do and as i now I know a dyslexic kid and someone that has um that is neurodiverse in many ways, like school just didn't work for me. So I left secondary school feeling thick and uncreative and got a job <laughs> in a factory. Um mm-hmm. thinking, all oh, right. Um and just sort of tuning out of that stuff. And and there's a long story. I spent 20 years from that factory to then because I was good with people getting promoted, 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 and then having a senior role in a big organization to do with culture and people and leadership um but i think what i was doing was exactly your point neil is i was trading what i call my natural born wonkiness for conforming and fitting in Mm -hmm. because if you think you're weird um it's not necessarily nice you want to be accepted and to fit in and then there's all these rewards like if you fit in then we give you more money and you get more you get a car and then you can buy a house and all of those things I think we go and through. I think we go
1: through phases of, of wanting to fit in. I mean, I, I mean, I just, I just remember turning up, uh, picking my daughter up from a, a party when she was, I don't know, fourteen, something like that. Yes. I, I looked, walked in, and looked across into the living room, and I didn't know which one was my daughter, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they were all wearing exactly the yeah. same yeah exactly and they're the same haircuts
2: yeah you know
1: give or take there was you know it was really and certainly at that point you know kids want to fit in they don't want to be different yeah and then I think you sort of go you know 16 it varies from child to child of yeah. course but um 16 17 18 you know when you go after college maybe sixth form college or when you go after university suddenly yeah. you, you do want to sort of I don't know
2: what you want to do, but you
1: don't want to fit in all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for then, me,
2: it was, it was from that. I think that um, I started caring a bit too much about that from going to secondary school because I didn't go to university. I did a master's degree later in life. Um, so I didn't even have that bit. It was like straight from school into, into. I mean, working in a factory as someone that has this wildly creative mind, Um was even more conforming so my my experience and yeah, yeah i think okay. i think the university thing does make a difference or people taking a gap year and going into writing yeah. i was just packing boxes yeah um, and if and, if this was a corny ted talk i'd say and then there was an epiphany and everything changed but it was much more subtle than that it was just a sort of rumbling of oh i'm not there's just something not not right there's something misaligned and then i just started doing various bits of like Personal development and training, some weird and wonderful stuff like T groups. And T groups basically, you sit in a circle with 16 other strangers with no agenda for 40 hours and things like that. And then just starting to tune did, back in thinking, what what happened to that kid that used to draw those books?
0: Did you start doing that, Steve, all because of a feeling? Was it was No, the... it
2: was again, I really need other people. I don't I don't think I do now, but other people to see something in me to snap me out of it. And I think it was just having a good good boss at the time who said, Right, I think the stuff that you're doing is is really good. Do you want some development? I'll pay for you to do some stuff. And then she she said, um, how about this thing? And it was a year long development programme with um, the NTO Institute, which is all sort of people, uh, it's like post-war Kurt Lewin, sort of human development institute. And she was spot on because the things like the T group really made me think, who am I, what what am I doing? And then I went on to do my master's degree, which again was another thing, just because um, he's a friend now, but he was my mentor at the time, Bill Critchley. Professor Bill Critchley founded the programme and he kept saying, You'll be brilliant on this program. And I said, but I've got a D in A-level geography. I'm not academic. <laughs> and then eventually he said, well, do you want to do it or not? And I said, yeah, all right. And he said, well, that was your interview. And <laughs> okay. But again, it was just him seeing something. Otherwise, I'd never have done it. And then that, that was one of the most pivotal things. And then my, that same boss paid for that. Those two years were really difficult, but helped me find start to tune back into that sense of curiosity and to find my uncensored voice so Um, in in in
0: similar ways were those two people were they able to see that child yeah were they they noticing it
2: they whether they saw that child but they saw something in me that i don't know maybe a willingness to experiment a, a way of being creative i'm not sure but they both saw something
1: and 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 you, uh, what
2: if those two people hadn't have been
1: in your life, would there have been other people that
2: saw yeah. what you had or
1: or do you think no you'd idea. have just been
2: packing boxes at a well, I mean, at the stage where I met them, so Sally was the first boss and then bill i was I was in a like a senior corporate role, global corporate role um with all the the trappings of that. and I probably just would have carried on. And I'm not knocking people that are happy in those roles climbing the ladder. If that works for them, <laughs> they're not mm. destroying the planet too much. Then fine. Um, but I would have just carried on because that—that's sort of the—that's uh, what adults do. That's what sensible adults do. Um, and that would have just been more and more numbing out of just this naturally strange way that I experience the world. Um, you, and- you said earlier, Steve, that you noticed something was missing. Yeah.
0: And and then I don't know the extent of the career, but it sounds like you found a way through and that other people would have declared you as successful. Yeah. Can you tell us as much as you can remember, how were you feeling successful at that time?
2: Well, the things that used to excite me were I still um, did um, some radio work on the side in part time, writing comedy for radio, performing radio stuff, but it's all, apart from a couple of bits, unpaid. But that used to bring me so much more satisfaction than getting a corporate paycheck at the end of the day. Um, but again, I think I was measuring success on how much money am I earning? Because again, it, this is all unique for our background. So um grew up in a working class family. My dad drove a London bus. Um, my mum worked in an office and then you know, gave up work when she had me and my brother. And it was always, and, and all of the extended families, you do a job that's that's as least bad as possible, hopefully something you enjoy. And then if another opportunity comes along to earn a bit more money, then you do that. And again, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I sort of fell into that. Like I can keep getting promoted and keep getting money and stuff. And it's such a difficult thing. Um, One of the things when I'm talking to people about how to live life more as an artist or more creatively is one of the most difficult things is to learn to live below your means. Mm. But if you or if I as I was and still am in the the, the traps of that, you just end up surrounding yourself with so many things that you then need to support, like mortgages and things like that. Um, And
1: would you be able to do what you do now if you had not
2: had that well-paid corporate? I don't I mean, I don't know. But what I'm by no means financially secure, Um, hence why I was telling you at the start, trying to get my little card machine to work to. 15 quid for a bit of art I mean far yeah. from it it's um but I think there's uh, there's a yeah, there's a massive platform of that of having some st- stability uh, can we that.
0: can we can we just stay on that point and circulate yeah. that for a minute because I think there's more 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 there I don't want to I don't want d- to be as simplistic as to just talk about what role does money play in this yeah but I'm I am interested in the things that might be pulling you in the right or wrong direction. Yeah. And how able you are to be able to navigate that. Because you've yeah. already said something that makes me think you're more conscious than most because you're right. talking about deliberately living below your means. Yeah. But I'm thinking about things like, yeah, h- how do you how do you know when it's right, when it's wrong? Because often when you've got that more simplistic view that, you know, the the kind of playbook that you just described in navigating life and jobs it's the decision-making kind of easy yeah. whereas within your world I'd imagine that the decision-making is very complicated you might not see it like that but
2: no it it is it's um but for me it's absolutely a gut feel and intuition that I've learned to trust more and more and bigger and bigger decisions in life it's just uh it's like and then I, I still have arguments with myself not literally um <laughs> But it's like my gut feeling saying no. This is. So I'll use an example. When I left the corporate world, um, first of all, I went. I went to leave, and then my a different boss at the time, so another brilliant person I worked with said, oh, "Why don't can we keep half of you and you work part time?" So again, that was a half. Oh, you want that that side or that side? And and work as flexibly as you want, as long as it works out 50-50. And again, that was a brilliant way of I've got a bit of security. Mm. Um, But that that was based on gut feel. I'm going to leave. And then when I eventually left, I remember I was just sitting in a meeting and sort of an internal client in the organization saying, right, this is the work we want to do. And I just I just thought, oh, I'm I'm leaving now, aren't I? It's just something in that moment. It's just like that energy is gone. But the argument that I have for myself um, and a lot of people that I do coaching work with have a similar thing is there's a voice going but what about money what about this no you, you're stupid don't trust this this gut feel is wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. but i've i've trusted it that's where the lost cat project come from where all of these other projects come from when i've done work that's worked really well when i've not listened to that gut feel i've ended up trapped in bits of work that i hate because i hate it everyone hates it but it is it is an intuition and it's so it's with big life stuff, it's really difficult to trust it. But I've learned to really, really trust it. It's great do to you, work with a therapist regularly as well. I was
0: going to ask that. Yeah, yeah. So you you just preempted me. But do you have other people? We call it your support team. Yeah. So a partner, um, friends, family, other people that you can that, that see what you can't see as easily.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because my my default would be to work it all out for myself, um, which it's sort of worked for a while. But then um, when you get into weirder and trickier stuff um that becomes really difficult so I've worked with my current therapist for like nearly four years which is brilliant um there's not necessarily anything that I'm working on where I come and say like this is x that I want to work on um also as a um doing coaching group work I work with a supervisor occasionally which is just helping me see perspective again one of the things that's really helped is um having a partner who gets these risks and has faith in that um and my daughter as well is like, I think she quite likes it that her dad has a weird job that no one can describe. And how old is she? Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm getting better at having a support network. Mm.
0: Just we we'll stay on the support network track for a yeah. second. I will, re, rewind back to when we were exploring childhood, and yeah. you were saying you were recording. Um, your radio show in your bedroom yeah and um and doing illustrations and music and all this kind of stuff i i'm wondering what your what the support of your parents was in that let me let me let me take a slight tangent yeah. just to add a bit of um a bit of color to the question i i don't know if you've seen it i'd really recommend it there's a there's a great documentary about billy eilish
1: right um
0: i think you have to watch it on apple or something but um but i really recommend it um they they managed to have cameras there when she was not known um and she was recording music with her brother and, and they were you know stuff that has become huge and, yeah. and at the time she was, it was her and her brother in the bedroom just doing what they did um what what came through in that documentary is because they're they're living at home with their parents yeah. and their parents homeschooled both of them and there was a there was a rule that they were quite religious about and that was if you are making music there's no bedtime yeah
2: Right. and, and
0: mm-hmm. she, i noticed the way she talked about that 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 was different that was something yeah. that's that was a real enabler of their of their creative spirit yeah and i so if you if you take that as the backdrop can you think back to your parents and the people around you at the time
2: what what role were they playing i mean i think it's a good question i think a lot of the patterns are laid down early in life i mean even like pre-five pre-verbal a lot of stuff's laid down then yeah it? so with, i think with my my mum and dad was not, would be encouraging the creativity. And there's, a, there's to a point that I'm getting to here. So my dad taught me to play the guitar when I was about five and like always be drawing and doing stuff like that. Um, but then the point was, but school's really important and getting good grades is important. And again, I think it is just, and it's, it's, it's a really lovely, well-intentioned thing. Because they left school at age fourteen with no qualifications, and you want better for your children, so it was all. I used to dread report days and um, things like that because they'd always be shit. Um,
1: (laughs) My my mum, even art. My mum mum gave me mine the other day. Right. Yeah. My secondary school reports, and you get you get a position in the class. Mine was like on average around about twenty seven out of thirty one,
2: and it was yeah. and that so it was it was that so there wasn't a we're not taking your creative expressions seriously it is we are but this is more this is more important in life i think and so that that i think became a tension early on and then sort of leaving school and like having to get a job it's like well you're going to have to start contributing to like housekeeping and paying rent so you need to get a job even if it's a job you don't like and um but then they they came to, I had a a couple of solo exhibitions last year and they came to that and they they loved it. And so I think they would have always encouraged it. But you can't, it's really difficult to encourage something when you've not had that experience yourself, mm. I think. And so again, it was just all of these things. Um, and I'm I would I, I'm the I've probably gone the opposite way now, but right up until probably about maybe 10, 15 years ago, if something wasn't working out for me, I'd blame me must be me must be because i'm broken in some way or i think wrong in some way and these are these are crazy thoughts and stuff like that um and so i would just i just conform i think and it's only sort of becoming more confident in not even confident more attuned to that sort of inner inner sense um but i have no regrets for anything Uh, and what what are you like with your daughter now again you you yeah you I think anyone's ambition for being a parent is to try and screw your kid up, at least consciously. We can't not. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. can't not. So at least know how you're screwing them up. Um, I mean, I. she's just got a um, really good grade on her GCSE mocks. She got grade eight uh, for her art, which really annoyed her because she wanted a nine. It's so like, I quite like that ambition. But it's. I, I think one of the things is um, sort of encouraging her. You don't have to think in in straight lines. It's like she wants she wants to do art, and people will say, "Well, what what job do you want?" I say, That's, "It doesn't matter. Just do art. You'll find you'll find a way of getting some money for it." Some of her bedroom, her bedroom is amazing. I mean, it makes this. I mean, you can't see it on the podcast. It makes my little studio here look dull. It's just like every inch of wall is painted on, and she's spray painted in there. And it's just. So I'm just encouraging that free expression, encouraging the fact that feeling down or feeling stressed or feeling anxious is is fine. That's that's part of the flow of life, as is feeling happy and all of those mm. things. Um, and then there'll be other shadow sides to how I am with her that won't help her. But like I say, you can't you can't not influence in some way. But I I think she will go into the world of finishing her GCSEs next year, into the world of whatever next. Um, perhaps with less structure which might be unhelpful but more of an open mind I think and and really tuned into what she's interested in
1: and how do you you feel so how long were you in that corporate uh, 20 years 20 years okay so those two how do you view those 20 years do you view them as really helpful because you
2: reacted against them or do you think they were wasted or I mean i there's, I mean, in terms of that um, sort of financial foundation, which again, I'm always keen to emphasise, isn't a uh, like yeah, there is there is no financial stability, but it's a foundation at least. Uh, yeah, at least <laughs> there's a few months' grace um, to earn money. Um, but other than that, I mean, that was a that's a big thing. I I have no regrets for it at all because I think what it's done is. Um, I, I do work in in corporations, but I'm able to speak a language having lived in yeah, and it. I'm can. able to speak it with compassion. I mean, I won't I won't work with organisations that do ill in the world or whose ethics I don't agree with. But that's where I'm always saying that it doesn't work for me being in that being in a role working for someone for a company. But if it works for other people, fine. And I, I teach on some masters programs at business schools, and again, that just gives me a really nice balance i think between academic language language of the weird and wonderful and a corporate language so sort of like that i can translate so i don't i don't regret it at all um
1: and, and it gives and me I, something
2: it gives me a contrast to experiment with it's like so what would the opposite of this be
1: yeah okay and and, and, I, and it sounds like your purpose is to sort of try and help those people that have got an appetite for that but not those that don't because it's not right for everyone
2: no and it's i don't i don't think i'm even as um philanthropic as that i'm just doing stuff because i'm interested yeah okay yeah so it's just purely selfish it is purely selfish um and i think that's an important thing to, to encourage i mean it's it's not selfish at the expense of others i think that's different no. it's just like i'm I'm doing stuff because i'm fascinated by it and if other people want to come along then yeah. then brilliant i mean they, mm. they were they were my three of my things in an article that article i wrote about living a creative life one was be fascinated number two was create windows into your world so other people can be fascinated and number three was live below your means mm. um and it's but what there's a really important point there ray which makes it even more difficult to exist financially is I can only work with others where there's at least one glimmer of hope that they're actually into this. It's, I get asked, invited a lot um, to come and do decently paid stuff with organisations. There's mainly organisations that I think this is going to make fuck all difference to you because you're not really interested. Um, And I I just. And why are they, why are they interested in getting you along? There's a couple. There's a couple of reasons. There's one is quite often um, there is. There's an addiction to like the utopian solution. I think a lot in in organisations where they're after the consultant, the book, the model, or something that's going to change everything. And I think philosophically they know it doesn't exist. That there's something far more difficult to do. Right, there's there's something that would be really awkward for them. But the more you go into this fallacy of the utopian solution, you employ me, you employ a consultant, and then it doesn't work. You can blame that consultant. So there can be a bit of scapegoating and shaming, which is part of some weird, bigger psychological pattern. Mm. But the that I mean, that's an extreme. I can see them a mile off. The, the more subtle one is people like the idea of something, but not the reality of it. Mm. Like we want to encourage our employees to have freedom of self-expression, spontaneous self-expression, and I'm always said to really like to stop for a minute and think what that would be like do you really want that and it's like oh no we like the idea of it but we don't like it in reality it
1: always makes me laugh and you know companies have innovation sessions on a tuesday afternoon between two and four (laughs) as as
2: if that's you know you can force it you can't force it and it's i mean that's 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 the thing is I, i can we meet as equals in this and this is again another thing why um maybe the way I consult is different to how the big consultancy firms with, I'm interested in it being a partnership. We meet together. You don't know, you don't know the answer or you wouldn't be asking me. And I of course don't know the answer. So how can we experiment and improvise together to see what happens next and then to see what happens next and then to see what happens next. And it's only few and you know, a few clients that will work in that way, but then it, you just give it becomes an adventure together.
0: Can you give us an example of where that's, where that has worked, yeah. where it's worked really well. Yeah.
2: And it, where, it, where it works well is, um, I won't name the company, but it's a UK food retailer company. Um, and again, it was it was at the time. This was quite a while ago, um, and they wanted to do some work around creating a culture of innovation. And the conditions here were, and I, I'm terrible at selling. I've never sold work. Everything is word of mouth, just because I hate being sold to, and I, so I can't, I don't want to sell. So someone had come along to a talk that I'd done, and they said, um, maybe we could do something together in this organisation. And so I said, Yeah, all right, then. Um, And then we had a conversation saying, um, she the client was able to get me in to start the work without having to go through some whole proposal process and everything else, which is designed to make sure nothing ever changes. Mm. Mm. Again, Ralph Stacey used to say that these things are institutionalised defences against anxiety. Mm. That, um, of course, there are some benefits to procurement and standards and that, but they just normalise everything, because they only want to buy stuff that makes sense. And it's all nothing's going to change. So this client in this organization managed to get me in and start doing some work. So I did over the space of about a year and a bit, 30 or 40 weird experimental workshops with people from across the organization um, where we just practice with what's it like to recover permission to think in this way? What's it like to improvise together? And then some experiments. We do some experiments in stores, some experiments with processes, some experiments with customers and all of the time my client is operating within the rules but not stifling it and what was brilliant about that is after a year or so this the board of this organization kept hearing stories and i go what's going on so what 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 is this um which was brilliant because then we were able to go and tell stories of what had already happened and again this is amazing and then you know, there's a lot lot more to that story but uh, I was saying to the boy that if I'd told if I'd come to you for permission to do this, you would have said no. So that's that's a good example of it improvise, like being able to improvise an experiment. And we'd try some stuff out and it wouldn't work. My client would say, That was shit, don't do that again. I go, Yeah, I agree. Or I'd say, actually, no, you've you've messed that stuff up there, we need to do this. But it was just that relationship of we're in it together, working it out. Um, and then that's the whole consultancy was not set up that way because everything's on a day rate right? and much of the work would just involve me hanging around with no intention, I can't charge, they wouldn't have the budget. But I, I can't really charge for that because it's, I used to do lots of work in factories as well, and part of it was just hanging around on the shop floor to see the day to day stuff. So there's an example of how it's worked as a partnership and experiment. Some brilliant stuff happened. and some stuff that you would have seen in this store has happened as a result of it. A load of stuff didn't work. A load of the board loved it. A load of the board hated it. It
0: it sounds like you, but, but in order for that to work, you need to find somebody who's got, enough of the same sensibilities that yeah. you've tapped into yeah they're just the other side of the fence they they're, yeah. they've got a different and i think role that's
2: of- the thing is i was in that role on the other side of the fence so right i, I yeah. say it was you yeah it was it was like i would i could i would find a way of going look here's what's going on and then really go oh, God, shit quick 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 no no nothing to see here to yeah. be able to get that to work
1: it's, it's sort of a um a bit of a seek forgiveness
2: rather than permission
1: yeah. attitude
2: yeah yeah and the, the important thing here is it's being, at least in that piece of work, it is being subversive and mischievous and experimental and sort of guerrilla tactics in the interest of the organisation. Because they are paying the money at the end of the day. And as long as I'm agreeing with the organization's ethics, I don't want to screw them up completely. So there's, there's, some, there's some really important boundaries there. It's not just disruption for disruption's sake.
1: Yeah, and, and and so your motivation—I mean, I, I appreciate your motivation is to do shit that you're enjoying doing, um, so that's that's part of it. But when it comes to the client versus the people, because there is no, there is no organisation; it's not a real thing. No, no exactly. <laughs> it, it, um, I, I'm imagining it, you get the kick out of the
2: people getting something from it. Yeah. I mean it's that exactly that you, you've named it completely there. the organization's an illusion it's not real so you can not pick it up and move it um it's I mean and I don't even know if I do stuff because I enjoy it uh, quite often when I do that bingo machine talk people go oh yeah it must be so much fun it's like actually no it's, it's really hard work and miserable at times as well the same as anything is but it's I think that's what it is it's there's a weird illusion in the corporate world at the moment we we the world is crazy and unpredictable and uncontrollable and then we go to parties and be okay without an agenda or we go to a sporting event and be comfortable we don't know the score when we walk in and then we'll walk down the street and it will be improvised and in the park we don't know what's going on but then we walk through the doors of a corporate office and all of a sudden this is different species that is linear and ordered and controlled and what i'm really trying to do is to it's where i think philosophy is uh, philosophy is a much underused mode of thinking or education in organizations, because to really think, um, what is this thing that we're participating in? Isn't it weird? Isn't it crazy? Just starts to recover that, not just the humanity, but just to think, actually, no, this is the same species. I'd, I'd like to do experiments Like at the start of a meeting. You imagine like a really buttoned down, really serious masculine board meeting And just to introduce the practice that at the start of the meeting, they were to all take a minute before the start of the meeting and have a look around the room and just to contemplate in which order will people die. (laughs) That's not that's not untrue, because that will happen. But imagine how much that would shift stuff, Mm. even if it didn't. But just that lifting the curtain for a little bit and thinking this is a big weird fucking game that we're playing the universe is utterly disinterested in our endeavors the universe wasn't designed with our best interests in, in mind this is all a human construction towards meaning um and that's fine it stops us freaking out but none of it's real i think just starts to bring a lot more of compassion and humanity and experimentation and i often say that in talks it's like you I get to the point of like talking about interesting, fun work, and then just go off on a tangent and say, Look, we are anxious apes seeking meaningless in a disinterested universe, standing on a ball of rock orbiting around a massive, expanding nuclear explosion in the infinity of space. <laughs> That's true. Don't, don't be depressed by it. But remember that when you're thinking about, Oh, I'm scared of putting this cat poster up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: i just want i want to just bring us back for a minute steve to when you were talking about the corporate world and and then there was a moment where you checked out like yeah this, i'm i am gonna go a lot of people in my experience get there and then they trick themselves yeah they they whatever whatever that energy is that they heard they pretend it didn't happen and then they march through it and and off they go and before they know it they're they're kind of old and you know that's yeah. Regretful, maybe. um wh- what I want to try and explore with you for a minute is when you when you made that decision, how much had you considered what's next? How much had you thought about financial security? How much had you had to plan and and, and how scared were you? can you
2: can you just talk around that for a minute? I mean I think i I'd, I'd thought about it lots and deeply, but the moment I stopped thinking about it was the moment that I decided to go. If that makes sense. So I remember chatting with, with Rob Pointon, is a good friend of mine. Um, written some brilliant books. Um, we, yeah, I remember chatting with Rob, and he says, "Oh, yeah, come and do some stuff with me. Will you leave? You'll be fine. Come and do some stuff with me." Um, or some other friends, and I go, "Right, okay. So what's what's the salary? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just like it, there'll be stuff. It's like, but but what what where, where, where do I come to work each day? Well, you don't. <laughs> what do I wear? Yeah, like, yeah what do I, It's like I don't I don't understand." And then Rob said something at the time of like, OK, don't worry, Like when you're ready, let me know. And it was that type of thing. It's like, but I need, because I'd gone straight from school, very organized way of being, um, straight into a factory, very organized way of being, every, the 20th of every month, some money appears type of thing. And so I, I couldn't even perceive of it being different. And it's like, so I'm going to leave. I still want all of those things to happen. And it's an illusion of of, of certainty, isn't it? Because anyone can suddenly be made redundant at any time. Mm. Um, and I think they were the things like working out the finances. And like, if we did, if we did this, um, how would that work? Was just keeping me more stuck. It was a try harder pattern of trying harder and harder to work out how to get out of this. But it was that moment of, oh, this gut feel. Now this is important. So another example of this was I've been vegetarian for 14 years now. And I didn't intend to. I've always, it's never quite sat right for me personally, um, to eat animals. And then one, one day I remember I was in Cornwall on holiday eating a fried breakfast. And I just thought, oh shit, I'm vegetarian after this last mouthful. And it was I just knew it's just like, oh, something's clicked. And it was the same thing with with leaving that job. It's like I can't not now and it, it sort of works itself out from that point um, because there's, there's always a reason that uh, that's
0: yeah I think where you're probably going to explore the same point that, that that click yeah that seems like something that doesn't happen for everybody right are you aware of that what how, how do you think about what that click is and how it's developed or was yes. it always there
2: I think maybe I can only speak for myself, but you can expand this to think maybe it's the same for everyone. I think it's always there, but we tune out of it, but there's, there's more noise. We create more noise to tune out of that. Um We create distractions. We create all of these things. Um And I think that's maybe what it is, was a maybe through some of the development work that I did. And certainly, I mean, it's ongoing. It's never on, I mean, we do this podcast in 10 years. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll be living underwater or something. I don't know, <laughs> Um, but it's, it's tuning into the quiet whispers i think i quite often ask people that in coaching it's like what's the quietest whisper you can tune into right now
1: and how that i'm assuming there was a period of um intense discomfort when you did finally make
2: that leap or not yeah i mean i think i've been an imper uh, period of intense discomfort my entire life, to be honest. Right, okay, um, so, a it was just degrees. A di- so it was a different type of discomfort. A different type of discomfort, yeah. Um, but again, it worked out because I, um, I when I went part-time, it's like, right. And I remember like coming back home and uh, talking to my wife and just saying, oh, and she's completely supportive of it. But there's a voice in my head saying, you idiot, you just cut off one arm by going part-time. And then a friend of mine said, oh, um, he runs a brilliant consultancy doing some really interesting work. He said, oh, I'll buy the rest of your time for the rest of the year. I so, okay, mm. that's 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 fine. And the same thing is like when I it's like I left full-time, I remember the first day when I didn't have a job, going and sitting down at computer and just thinking, I'm such a loser. I'm such a loser. Why can't I appreciate these nice things that I've had? Yeah, And then other stuff appears and it's but that that quiet whispers thing i think is really important there's a phrase that i use i got it from a guy called arnie mindell never come across arnie mindell's work and he calls it quantum flirting and quantum flirting i think such an it's like an existentialist philosophy is that we don't need to work hard to find answers or find solutions the practice is to gently let go and quieten the noise so you can hear them calling Mm-hmm. i often say to people like people say where do you get ideas from because if you've been on my instagram it's just loads of weird shit that i've drawn on there and it's like how can you not have ideas they're they're there all the time the the world is constantly whispering stuff to us the practice of quantum flirting is just being open to hearing it calling and but when that's the same with that internal world is being mm-hmm. open to that that gut feel i think
1: But but when we're when we're living a life which is on autopilot yeah uh, and we've got these triggers which you know uh, these habits that that uh, just uh, shit just happens you just yeah. do w- what you're doing and that's why you can't see what is there because yeah. you're you're on autopilot you're unconscious you're not actually conscious and when you when you manage to move yourself away from those triggers and therefore those habits then suddenly you start seeing stuff yeah. that's
2: around you yeah, absolutely. Rob, Rob, who I mentioned earlier, Rob Poynton's got a brilliant model in one of his books um, that just says, uh, let go, notice more, use everything. Yeah. And I hate that model because it all sort of works really well and I wish I'd come up with it. <laughs> <laughs> let go, notice more, use everything, and then more of that yeah, process. Yeah. Yeah. And I trained lots in uh, real interest in existential philosophy and um, Gestalt psychology. I trained lots with in, in Gestalt. And essentially, Gestalt is just a practice of deepening here and now awareness to recover choice. And that that's it it's really unappealing for a objective, future driven world but mm. deeper awareness of stuff as it already is and in doing that you recover choice it's paradoxical and i think that's the thing is we may recover choice and think actually i'm i don't like this job that i'm in i don't like this but i'm going to make the choice to stay versus it being something we're not aware of and i think mm-hmm. that's that's the thing it's quite often People I've worked with in the past, or people I've worked with, say, "Oh, yeah, I hate my job. I want to do more stuff like you." And it's well, it's okay if you don't. Don't give yourself a hard time over it. If you're making a choice that this is the right thing for you, then that's fine. Yeah, I just, I just that had choice a choice. Is is the thing you may choose to do nothing different, but at least it's a choice. You're you're living beneath
1: your means,
2: uh, mantra, which
1: yeah, I, I love. But <laughs> I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day. And we was talking about we were talking about a holiday we had in. In, in the states and yeah. we saw these huge rvs that, that are traveling around and she remembers one having a sort of expanded out you know when it's parked up it this this the walls expand yeah. out to reveal you know in in the, that expansion a, a running machine a gym right, and, you know i'm thinking jesus christ yeah. we're in Yosemite. Yeah. And you've and you've got you've got you've paid this huge amount of money for this RV to house a gym when you could probably just pay for, pay for a pair of running shoes and go outside into nature. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it sort of sums it up. There, there is so much when you look up and notice what's out there.
2: Yeah, that,
1: that there's so much joy that can come from just like looking around. Yeah. And how often do we sit there on a park bench and just look at the world go by? Rarely, because we probably pick up our phone yeah. and look at Instagram instead of just watching this amazing population
2: sort of walk in front of us. Yeah, yeah, well, it's all sort of a process of uh, tuning out, isn't it? But again, it might be a conscious thing. People might think. I mean, I annoy myself that I always look at my phone on the train.
1: so yeah, well, like, yeah. why can't
2: why can't I not? Um, and I did a, a bit of artwork. I think it was a couple of years ago that just said uh, they had a man sit on the train and it just said, if you're not looking at your phone on the train, you are a weirdo um, <laughs> because it does feel like that. If you just sit yeah. like that, or if you just sit on a bench, like Forrest Gump, it's like, yeah, why does that make me feel like the weirdo? Um, yeah. The most, the most normal thing. I'm not
0: sure this is the right thing to admit on a pub podcast, but I will in the spirit of what we're talking about. I've noticed that if you're on a particularly packed train and everybody else is on their phone and you're standing up, you get a really interesting insight into the way people use their phones. Right. Because that's one of the only things you can observe is different yeah. people using their phones. And it's really fascinating because you yeah. watch somebody do something and they check in all their messages and stuff and then they sort of exhaust all of that. They put the yeah. phone away and then about 10 seconds goes by and then they get up and just do all the same it stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really, really interesting. So maybe that's the, 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 the hack
1: Yeah,
0: is to not be on your phone but be on other people's phones. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Well, I've, I've I've everywhere I go, it, I've always got, I mean, noise cancelling headphones is the thing that I need, even if I'm not listening to music. But other than that, I've always got pens and paper and often I'll just sit and I'll draw and I'll be drawing stuff that rather than be on my phone. Or sometimes I look at my phone as a reference for it um, and people will quite often say, oh, what are you drawing? And I find that fascinating because if someone's on a laptop, I wouldn't go up to them and say, What are you typing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're on your phone. <laughs> well, try it, try it. Let's there's, know, there's let's something around, it. Something around that drawing that people are going, Oh, they must be doing something interesting or that's strange. And I just find that, again, just a really interesting social phenomena mm. that you wouldn't do it with this, the other mm. thing. Mm. You're absolutely
0: right. Um, I, I, I just want to understand so the relationship with your wife. Yeah. How much has she f- either followed or have you followed of each other yeah so yeah. so the thing the, the, the ideas we're talking about I, again I was trying to be deliberate in the way I asked the question because I don't, I don't want I, I, I don't assume that she's become an artist or that she defines herself as an artist but the ideas we're talking about around kind of letting go hearing yeah. the whispers
2: I think I, I don't know whether led or leading or being led, but she's a photographer. She works for herself and she does amazing work around, most um, well, incredible work around women's mental health and people seeing themselves differently through witnessing photos of themselves. So it's a sort of similar uh how how are we gonna make money, but this is important work type of thing. And I guess it's been a negotiation through um yeah, so we're not even an agreement like going on nice holidays and stuff is something we're going to sacrifice but so I don't know about lead and being led um, I think I've been doing a lot of the um, sort of bigger projects and stuff like that a bit longer so I have some idea of I don't know how to how to set up weird experiments and that. but I think the most important thing is that negotiation because if it was a so if you're in a, a, a relationship, or it may even be with family where stability and financial security are really important. I'm not arguing that they're not, um, it'd be far trickier. Mm-hmm. So I'd sort of gone from being the main breadwinner and saying, well, actually <laughs> I sort of want to go from being the main breadwinner to scavenging around for 15 quids here and there. Um, but I think that, so I don't know if I'm avoiding something in the question. We, there's a similar path that we're on that, um, i think that would be so important if it caused if that caused tension that'd be really difficult
1: she understands yeah. i guess by sounds of it your your need to do what you want to do
2: yeah and vice versa yeah, as well yeah, yeah, no, yeah. and it's just that, like i'm going to be spending all of this money to hire a theater in covent garden to do an experiment that no one might turn up to um but i'm just letting you know because that's going to be costing me like 700 quid or something Um, and i made it back in the end um but that's sort of important conversations aren't they and if she'd said fuck off um it would have been difficult but the thing is with me it's like quite often people say oh your your work's really brave how do you how do you have the courage to do it that i can't not do it that's the thing i have no choice i have Mm. no choice in it I have no choice in. I just got an order for a load more cat posters. I have no choice in stuffing them envelopes myself and writing on it. I That's what I have to do. But, that, but that's when you know it's right, when yeah. you know you have no choice. Yeah. And it's that, it's the moments, and there's loads going on at the moment that I can't go into. Um, it's just that moment of going, oh, I'm doing this, am I? All right, then. <laughs> okay. Here we go again. Um, because it does just feel. It just feels, I mean, right, so it, it goes beyond words, but it feels that this is what I, I can't not do these things. But that's
1: a really, I think that's sort of, under. being able to tune into yourself and really yeah. listen to yourself, that's a really, when, when you ne- haven't necessarily done much of that, Yeah. or you don't know when you have done it and when you haven't done it, yeah. It's really hard you know to, to sit there and say to somebody just listen to yourself, trust yeah. your gut, trust your instinct. It's really fucking hard because I think for, it's more you know, than I think it's impossible. It, well yeah. it, 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 I think it, I think it's a good practice to try and yeah. try and understand what but there's, there's you know there is a difference between what your head's telling you, what your heart's telling yeah. you, what your gut's telling you and trying to decipher between those those yeah. three things is really, really hard. but I, the only way to do it is to experiment.
2: I did. I, you won't be able to see this on the podcast, but I describe it. I painted this the other day, and it became really popular. The so daily a, human a fake, feeling. yeah, it's a fake um, newspaper headline. It says, "Feelings are real," because that again, I, I I painted it for myself, just as that reminder of for my head to not talk me out of this the, this gut feel. Yeah, and the the, the thing is, with I, it, again, it's another bugbear of mine of the self development world is. A, it's just become big business and a lot of it's snake oil um, sales. But the fact to think that we actually get anywhere, whereas I think if you really are exploring yourself, you just perpetually become a deeper mystery. Mm. And then you find out, you go, oh, right. Oh, there's even more here I don't know. And it keeps going. Yeah. I find that interesting because if you... Well, a couple, there's a couple of things there, isn't there? Is anyone that says, "Right, I've done all my self-development work. I'm now fully self-aware." Probably, <laughs> probably nowhere near that. Yeah. But the other thing is, imagine if suddenly you were the finished article. Yeah. How boring would that isn't, be? Jesus. It's like there is nowhere else to go. No. Yeah. Um, so, I but I think that's the thing is just that turning towards mystery. But uh, very- yeah,
1: yeah, and I and I think that that sort of that realization that it doesn't matter how much you explore yourself or the world that you'll never understand it. Because as you say, yeah. the more you do, the more of that self-discovery you do, the more you realise that you do, that there's there's even more you don't know. Yeah. But you do, I think there is something nice in getting to that point where you
2: know that you will never get yeah. there. Yeah, and it's, it's that point of, it doesn't become, de- well, for me, for me, it doesn't become depressing when you fully allow that to be the fact that, in the grand universal scheme of things, I am insignificant and impermanent. I mean, yeah. if someone, of course that's true, isn't mm. it? That's, yeah. um, and so is everything. Um, and but I, I think that just makes it more mysterious. And I think if there is one thing that unites all of my work with that paid work, art experiments or that, is that, that movement towards not knowing to gradually move us towards not knowing. Yeah. There's a Nietzsche quote um, that's on my wall. It's the only quote I've got on my wall because it summed up really what my fascination is um, so eloquently. So, Nietzsche said, Learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder.
0: Mm, that's but really the, nice. The
2: elements to that are so important to me. Learning to see the world as strange. So, that's why there is a Lost Cat project. That's why there is this weird stuff. I'm moving towards the world being a bizarre experience and inviting others to gently do that. And that discombobulates us. So, learn to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday. That's that's the work. That's the how can I tolerate not knowing? How can I tolerate difference? How can I tolerate mystery a bit yeah. more? <clears throat> because then the third part is, if you can do that, the world becomes more wondrous. It's like, oh, yeah, there are yeah. possibilities.
1: Yeah, and this there's, is there's, you know Neil and I always talk about this sort of the the, the fact. I think our first ever uh, the opening podcast that we did, the two of us, just a, a conversation. It's just about the known and the unknown. And I think yeah. that's that's the language we've used all along in this is that it's about finding a balance.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, because if you're if you're permanently in the known, then well it's you're gonna have a few <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be difficult because something's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it it always does. But if you're if you you've got two feet in the unknown you're going to find yourself chaotic in a chaotic world, and um, and that's not great either. But having a foot in one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown yeah. is the, the only way I think that you can find any sort of
2: balance. Yeah. it's and I think that's spot on. It's um, because otherwise you're just overwhelmed and freaked out. There's a reason right. why, as human beings, we have these patterns towards the familiar is to to allow us to evolve and exist. But it's um, there's a term that I love using. It's from an academic called Barry Mason that he called safe uncertainty. And I refer to that as what is the what is the world of just enough for you? And that's Mm. unique for everyone. What is just enough of the sense of safety and security and predictability, but just enough, not enough more so you can function and then the rest be up for grabs? I wanted to come back to that. To that bit actually steve sorry let, i'll let you finish off and then i'm just going i to think to that was the back... end of that sentence okay
0: so I, I wanted to bring you back to when you said that one of the tools you use is um uh you didn't say just enough but what was the the words that you used living below your means consciously yeah. living below your means right um h- how clear are you and your wife how how conscious are you of where your just enough is how far below your means you're prepared to go because I think one of the things that would be an inhibitor for for many people is they'd be thinking about things like, "Well, do I end up homeless?" Yeah. Or you know, I think that's
2: probably and, and pe- people naturally go to the to the extremes yeah. with it. I mean, the the big caveat on that is, like I said earlier, there is a foundation of having had a job for a long time. My wife had a job for a long time, so it's I guess for for us, it's like we don't really to do anything we don't really go out we don't really go on holidays and if we don't go on holidays it'd be in the uk but even that that's uh, i want to caveat that because that is a platform and a privilege to be able to do that as well and i mean being not being able to afford to pay the rent and not being able to eat and um use it, it become aware that in saying that i'm saying that from a position of privilege and a platform um and for us i think it we've always said that if it got to the point where we would have to give up the house because this is important work to do then we probably would or we might get a get a job or something um it'd be a conscious thing Mm. but i think that's yeah that's a constant negotiation and a check and i i obsessively it's because my my parents always the only thing they ever argued about was money they never really had much money um and so i just i'm i sort of squirrel stuff away and not really spend much on stuff Gone mm. go
1: on right well yeah I'm i'm i'm
2: changing the subject a little bit because i just can't not
1: answer ask this question expectations of your projects
2: yeah what are they yeah um i always say there's a difference between an an intention and an objective so they i always have an intention which is to explore what happens if i do something but i have no objective for them Um, okay and and i was go go on i was because the project will go to far more interesting places that i would take it if i if i was in control it wouldn't i'd steer it so so, so you're
1: firmly in the unknown other than sort of setting out you know giving a platform to yeah. the to the the project the
2: yeah. whatever it may be okay it's like a kite i would uh, like in, this might be a crap metaphor i've just thought of it let's see how it comes out it's like a kite Like i design it and that and i do some work to get it up in the air but when it's up in the air it is then leading me yeah okay. And it's like so the the silent podcast project was a brilliant example of i i was thinking right there's too many podcasts out now I'm on a podcast, yeah. So I, I'm not anti-podcast, but this, just- this is probably one too many as well, to be quite <laughs> honest. So. Um, and I don't know, I like podcasts, but it's just there's loads out that have not really much to say. And it was just, yeah. And so I thought, what would the opposite of a podcast be? Similar chain of thought. Well, it'd be nothing, it'd be a downloadable nothing, maybe a downloadable silence. And yeah, what if I broadcast every week nothing but recorded with some really interesting people? Um and then I, I, I got home from my run, and I announced to everyone that on the when is it? It's up here. It's like the eighteenth of June, twenty eighteen. I'm going to be launching the world's first silent podcast with special guests.
1: I'm assuming. I, I'm um, assuming you could sort of say, yeah, uh, this week we've got Queen Elizabeth, uh, you know. Uh, she declined. I didn't. Did oh yeah, but, but nobody would know. Nobody would know if it's a no. silent
2: podcast. But the um, the the point, and I can get to talking about how that podcast worked because that that was something that just led to some weirdly brilliant moments but the point was that was my that was the extent of my work was to do that and to announce it and one of the mantras in my work is to leap then look because i will talk myself out of it
1: yeah 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 well and this is what i want this is what i want to want to get to because uh, i was sort of hoping you would say that you don't have expectations you um and 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 it, it seems to me that what you're doing is sort of focusing on now
2: yeah yeah, you know, and, that, and that what's, what's again, is that improviser's mantra is what's the offer here? So I've done that. I've announced the world I'm doing this. I had a working title of Sound of Silence that ended up being the actual title. So I didn't even put effort into branding <laughs> that. And then it was just sit back and go, shit, what am I going to do now? I need some guests. And I, I said at the start, there's going to be 100 episodes and they'll be coming out weekly. And after I'd announced that, I thought, oh, fuck, that's, that's over two years. Um, and then from there, it's like, find the first... Couple of guests and then record it and then put it out and so then, hang on. So let, let's. I've got to understand
1: this. I mean, probably the best thing is I do if I go back and listen to it, but yeah, uh, or not. <laughs> uh, yeah.
2: Um, but presumably, you actually had a guest on for. Well, uh, the way it uh, works is 100 episodes, all recorded face to face, so none on Zoom. Because I was interested in what happened if I recorded the silence between people. And I'd travel around, ended up being all in the UK, although I went to Berlin to record with someone who wasn't in Berlin. Um, But (laughs) but it was mainly around the UK. And then each week I broadcast an episode. And And it was just just silence between two days? So the the way the episodes worked is now, if you go online, I'll send you the link afterwards, soundofsilence.org.uk. There is just a collection of silence. But for the podcast, there was a very brief introduction. Um, So I'd say... Welcome to Sound Science. Today's guest is Ray. Uh, Ray has a podcast um, called, I've forgotten what it's called, uh, Life, uh, Life Done Differently. Welcome, Ray. And then Ray would go, hello. And then we'd sit in silence for two minutes. Two, two, no,
1: minutes, two three, minutes. Two minutes. Two okay. minutes.
2: Um, and then after two minutes, I'd say, Ray, thank you for joining me. And you say, thank you. And that's <laughs> the same format every episode. Um, no episode longer than three minutes, two minutes of it was silence. And I had people on it like Eddie Izzard was on it. Um, Vic Reeves was on it. Uh Terry White was on it. Jade Adams was on it. Um at authors and dancers and writers. And-, and and
1: what and what was the
2: um what did you learn from it? What did I mean it's it's one of those things I still well, unraveling. <laughs> no, it was what was it the how compelling the counterintuitive is so. it is oh, yeah, peak okay. there ten to fifteen thousand people listening to an episode. Um, it's like there's nothing on it. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, what was also interesting is it's an empty container that I created, and people would write and say, "I love this podcast." This podcast is about anxiety, or this podcast is about peace, or this podcast mm-hmm. is about meditation. It's like yeah. it's whatever you want it to be because it's mm-hmm. a container. You pour into it whatever you want. I recorded one with Simon uh, Simone Lear, who's a cartoonist in The Observer or someone. And her um her daughter who's then a toddler was in the background playing and you could hear her in the background. And someone said, Ah, oh, this this is about working mothers, isn't it? And it's yeah, it's whatever you want. So that idea of empty containers and we're interested in structure and how much we overstructure.
1: And, and, and we, you know, very we don't have silence very often. No. Well, I mean, it was, you
2: know, they were excruciating as a quite socially awkward person, they were excruciating to record as well. Yeah, I'm sure they were. Yeah, no, that's what I was everyone thinking. Everyone was different. I recorded one episode with my dog. That was the easiest one. Because <laughs> would you would you sit there and look at the person? So I mean, we, it's different every episode. That okay. was always the question that people asked was um, what do we do during the silence? And I used to say, Well, we'll find out, won't we? I don't know. <laughs> the only criteria is it's two minutes. Um, and then sometimes it would feel easy sometimes it go quickly sometimes it'd be awkward um i recorded one in a dark underground prison isolation cell with a curator of the national justice museum and we couldn't see a thing and that was just that was really strange um the, there was one that i recorded with an artist called Vinka peterson um who i told vinca this story afterwards um but she said um can we do an experiment so i think okay then and she said for the silence can we hold hands and look into each other's eyes? And it's like, that's the worst thing you can ask me to do. You know? <laughs> but you did so it did. anyway. We did. It's like, okay, let's do that. Um, that's the only episode that the silence is slightly longer than two minutes because we started doing it. And I thought, oh, I can't see my timer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't break eye contact. And I didn't want to cut it short, so I had to guess. Um, but again, it's that whole thing of the word silence is woefully inadequate to describe the experience the human experience of nothingness or space in between and it just be it became a massive philosophical experiment i've
1: just been i've just come back about months ago from a a 10-day silent retreat so i sort of it's it's
2: yeah it's a it's a really interesting yeah and there's there's background noise on the episodes and some are really silent um some there's yeah there's background noise there's one i recorded with a uh, Paralympian and its angry goose was shouting at us throughout it. It's what, what so another happy side effect. I was annoyed. I put out an episode every week and it's such hard. Work. I mean, anyone that does a podcast with content, I have great respect for. Them. I <laughs> have no content and it was just so much hard work. Um, and then COVID hit and I had six more episodes to go and I couldn't record them to get to the hundred get to the hundred I had six left to go and it's like well, what am I going to do I didn't want to record them on zoom because it's not the same yeah part of it was the experience of going to someone and so every other week um I'd record an episode I had some lined up but I'd put out a best of and it was just 10, <laughs> it was 10 of the silences sequenced together and I just thought I just did that to just to say right okay that's going to buy me some time and people loved them because they're in lockdown. They could listen to ambient noise of parks and of of busy streets and things like that, and it's like, okay, well, that was a happy accident. I didn't intend to do that, and they become a resource for people during lockdown. Yeah, that's uh, what I love about not having. If I had an objective, yeah, yeah, Uh, uh, that's part of it.
1: That that that's what I love about your approach is that you you don't want
2: for anything. You just waiting. Yeah, I'm interested for it to happen. What's the opposite of a podcast? That was it. That's that's yeah, all yeah. I was interested in. Um, what's the opposite of Ted? What happens if I stick this cat poster up? And it wasn't even that. The question for that one was, I wonder if this cat's really lost. <laughs> but having that curious, and then experimenting with it, and then it just keep on unravelling. That's that's what I think life's about.
1: Yeah, and, to, and, and what you're... You're unafraid to launch it
2: yeah it's i mean they are it's like i can't not that's the only way i can describe it it's like i will get to the point of going oh shit i'm doing this am i and, and, I, and, and I know and there's what, no point arguing with myself about it because i'm going to do it and 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 what what you
1: i imagine know you're going to get from it is some learning of some description yeah even the adventure exactly it yeah. will be an adventure you you're 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 going into the unknown and something will come out of it yeah um yeah Steve I'm gonna I'm gonna um
0: wind us down I'm gonna if it's okay just finish with one question
2: can scorpion smoke good question um I don't know you need to ask one (laughs) but if you'd like the story behind that I can tell you that go on go on Uh, so can scorpion smoke ended up being the name of my registered business at company's house and the name of my website and the name of i wrote a book ages ago um that my daughter illustrated when she was six but i was um when i did the masters with bill critchley i wrote my dissertation on spontaneity Um, and my research was um learning and performing improvisation in comedy clubs and stuff like that and i was in one scene where um i was just I was in a car with someone and they were, I was asking them stupid questions. We established this routine of me asking stupid questions. And out of nowhere, I just said, can scorpion smoke? And the audience loved the bizarre question. And I just thought, I have no idea where that came from. And so that became a thing, it's like, and someone said to me, you should call your dissertation, can scorpion smoke? but the, so that became a thing of a moment of spontaneity but as part of some serious research when i wrote the book i wrote to the chief entomologist at the natural history museum and asked them can scorpions smoke <laughs> um so the definitive answer i probably not i think i can remember it i haven't got a copy of the book um they said um something like Thank you so much for your letter, Mr. Chapman. Um, I've looked into this and I can provide the following answer. A large adult scorpion would have the capability to pick up a cigarette in its pincers. And it would have the dexterity to be able to put a cigarette to its mouth. However, it wouldn't be able to inhale because scorpions don't have lungs. They have box lungs that are separate. To the mouth system. So my conclusion is, a scorpion could not smoke. Yours you sincerely. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. You know full well
1: they would have opened up that letter and gone fucking brilliant. Right? Yeah, okay. Exactly. This exactly. is. This is. I'm not going to be it's bored su- here. It's no. such they, a
0: perfect uh, embodiment of what you live for. I love it. It's really yeah, really yeah. good.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. I. I. I would ask the question: Where can people find you? There's an obvious answer and a less obvious answer.
2: Oh, what's the less obvious one? Well, I guess Instagram and all that. I think it was stuff, after my, it, my home address or something. Oh, yeah, I mean, we can do that if you want. <laughs> no, so, no, 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 don't. Um, so yeah, can scorpionsmoke.com. Um, I think that's the sort of portal into my my world. Someone described my website. And again, I put no effort into branding the website. It sort of happened. Someone said it's like IKEA, you can never find what you want, you leave with a load of stuff you didn't know you needed. Um and then Instagram is at Steve XOH. and the same on Twitter as well. I put I don't put much on Twitter, um, but yeah, and that that they will lead into cat posters and projects and sound of silence podcast and all of that stuff. Love it. Absolute pleasure. And we can't wait to find out what the spillboard project is. So
0: we'll keep watching and um,
2: yeah. Have a look at my Instagram. I think next week. I can say what that is, um, but that, yeah, that's interesting and scary at the moment, that project. It might be, might be shit. I don't know. I'll find out next week. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Steve.
0: That's it folks. For show notes, head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links, a quick summary and you can also explore other conversations. If you're enjoying this podcast then please tell your friends, give us a good rating and remember to subscribe. We're also really keen to hear your feedback so please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on Twitter. You can tweet us at lifedonediff, that's double F.